Welcome to the Verse by Verse podcast, a ministry of the Friendship Congregational Bible Church. I'm Richard Church, the teacher on Verse by Verse, and I'm glad you've joined with us today as we study together God's infallible word, verse by verse. Let's turn to the Gospel of Mark and chapter 15. Verse 16 says, And the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium, and they called together the whole band. And they clothed him with purple, and plaited a crown of thorns, and put it about his head, and began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they smote him on the head with a reed, and did spit upon him, and bowing their knees, worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple from him, and put his own clothes on him, and led him out. To crucify him. Now, at this point, the the Lord has already been sentenced to death, and Pilate was unwilling to release him to the people, as as uh, the tradition was. Instead, he released Barabbas to them. And here, the soldiers, Christ is is with them as a condemned man, a man who, before this day is done, is going to be dead, and. The, the soldiers decide that they're just going to have a little fun with him before they put him to death. Uh, they, they bring him here. It says they let him into the hall called Praetorium. And a, a, the, the term Praetor is a, a term of rank among the Romans. Um, it, it, would be, it was primarily a military rank, but also used of civilian officials as well. And uh, this would probably be the, the palace here of Pilate that they're still at. And they, they bring him there into the hall. And it says they call together the whole band. Now, there's only a couple of soldiers that are needed here to keep Christ in custody. But they get together the whole unit that they're a part of, this whole group of soldiers. And, and again, you know, here they have this opportunity. Here's this man who has been uh, accused and convicted of claiming that he is the king of the Jews. And these soldiers see the opportunity to just just uh, have a little bit of grim fun here with the Lord Jesus Christ. And, you know, they here, here's somebody, a soldier's life was not a, an easy life, and soldiers were not the, you know, the, the highest members of society. They were pretty low in Roman society. But here's somebody that's lower than them. And here's somebody that they can use to to lift up themselves a little bit. And the way they do it is by mocking him and mocking the, the, the thing that he's accused of. You see, it says that they clothed him with purple. And purple is a, a color that in the Bible and just, just generally... Um, you know, throughout, throughout much of history, for whatever reason, has been associated with royalty. And really what they're doing is they're, they're mocking him here as a king. So they clothe him with purple. A king needs a crown, and, and rather than a crown of gold or, or a crown of jewels, here they take thorns. And they, they plaited or they wove this crown of thorns and they pushed that down on his head. And you see that in mockery, they're there, they're saluting and they're saying, Hail, King of the Jews. 
Uh, instead of a scepter, they give him a, a reed to hold as a scepter, and then they take the reed away from him and they strike him with it. And they even uh, bow down before him. Now, when it says they bowed down, bowing their knees, worshipped him, uh, you understand all of that is done in jest and it's done in mockery. And, uh, you know, they, again, they do this. This would be a part of, of the suffering of Christ. It isn't really part of his sentence. But often with, with convicted individuals, um, I mean, it's somebody who's set for death anyway. So what does it matter how they treat him here in these moments before his death? Now, the, for most of this message, we're going to, to focus specifically on this crown of thorns that they place upon Christ. And, and the crown of thorns, you see, it, it says that they, they clothed him with purple and they plaited this crown of thorns and put it about his head. When you get down to verse 20, it says they took off the purple from him. But it doesn't appear that they take off that, that crown of thorns. Uh, he's going to wear that crown to his death. And the soldiers don't understand the significance of their own actions here. But understand that these details of the crucifixion of Christ all play a part in the fulfillment of, of the types and shadows of the Old Testament. And, you know, these, these soldiers, again, their intent is not to fulfill these things, but that's what they wind up doing. And there are going to be especially three passages. There would be many more, actually, that we could look at that would relate to, to this crown of thorns. But uh, there's three passages, especially in the Old Testament, that we're going to, to look at today to see a little bit of the significance here of this crown that they place upon Christ's head. And understand that when it says this is a crown of thorns, the Bible isn't completely clear exactly what, what kind of, of tree or shrub they would have gotten these thorns from. But these are not, these are not little thorns like you might find on a, on a blackberry bush or, or something like that. These are, you know, long, piercing thorns. And they press they don't set this crown gently on his head. They press this crown of thorns onto his head and, and it cuts into the, the flesh of his, of his head there. And there's, again, a lot of things that are fulfilled here in the symbolism of the crown of thorns. You know, the, the first mention of thorns in the Bible, go back to Genesis chapter 3. Um, oftentimes... In studying the Bible, it can be very helpful to go back and look at the very first place that a, a certain word or a certain concept is mentioned in the Bible. And it will often reveal very much uh, about that thing. Here in Genesis chapter 3, after the, the uh, sin of Adam and Eve, here uh, they're standing before God and God is is pronouncing certain curses upon each one of them, upon the serpent and upon Eve and upon Adam. And in verse 17, it says, Unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake, and sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field, in the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, 
and unto dust shalt thou return. Now, notice that the curse here upon Adam extends far beyond the person of Adam himself. Because God had put the earth under Adam's dominion. And, and when, when somebody who's in a position of authority comes under a curse, it affects everything that is under his jurisdiction, everything that's under his authority. And so here in cursing Adam, the entire, the entire earth is cursed. The ground itself is cursed. You see, he says, cursed is the ground, but it's not because there was something wrong with the ground. He says, cursed is the ground for thy sake. And so when, when Adam sins, it, it's why the Bible says that it was through Adam, through one man, that sin entered into the world. Now, Adam wasn't the first one to sin. Eve was the first one to sin. But Eve's sin only affected Eve. Adam's sin affected the whole world. And, and uh, Adam, it's, it's, uh, that's why it says, in Adam all die. Not in Eve, even though Eve sinned first. It's, that's why it's so important that Adam sinned, because Adam was in that position of authority, that position of dominion, that position of headship over his wife and later the children that would come so that the effects of that curse extend to everybody that's descended from Adam, but it extends to the whole creation. Um, in in uh, Paul's epistles, he writes about how the creation groans and travails together and, and how the, the creature, the creation, was made subject to vanity, not, not willingly, not that the creation sinned, but it was God subjected them, it says that God subjected it in hope. The creation itself is is waiting if you think of the the creation itself as as you know having a, a sort of a will uh, the creation is waiting to be to be uh, given liberty from this curse that begins here in Genesis chapter 3 and you see that thorns and thistles are a part of that curse that Adam is going to to try and work the ground in the Garden of Eden they had every need supplied um, they, didn't, they didn't have any need really of clothing or shelter. Uh, their need for food is supplied naturally by the plants in the garden. They don't have to you know, go out and farm or, or any of those kinds of things. But now it's not going to be like that. Now the, the creation is not going to, to lend itself willingly to man, but rather it's going to be in, in conflict with man and man with it. So that you see that uh, Adam is going to have to, it says, in the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread. It's going to take some real work for Adam to get that creation to, to bring forth the things that are going to sustain his life. And because he's going, to, he's going to try and work that ground to get it to bring forth useful things. And instead, what's going to happen is thorns and thistles are going to come up. And these thorns and thistles aren't, aren't useful for man's purpose. Uh, and so throughout the Bible, you have thorns and thistles that are, that are associated with sin. They're associated with rebelliousness uh, and, and they're associated with hardship as well. Uh, very often the Bible will talk about, for instance, in the, in the Proverbs, it talks about how uh, the way of a, a slothful man is, is like a, I can't, I'm not quoting it directly, but it basically says like a hedge of, of thorns. And how, you know, a slothful person, it's just everything in life is hard for them. But it says that a, a, a righteous man's way is made plain. And, and so hardship, that hardship of these thorns and thistles, and what an appropriate thing. Here is the Lord Jesus Christ is, is suffering there and, and preparing to go to his death, 
that you have these thorns, that symbol of the curse that's placed upon his head, a thing that's associated with sin, so that so you would have the bearing of sin pictured there, but also of, of suffering and hardship. Uh, these thorns that come in and are going to afflict Adam because of sin, Christ bears as he goes to Calvary. He, he bears those thorns. He bears that curse that came in because of Adam. Um, the... Go still in the book of Genesis. Go to Genesis chapter twenty-two. Genesis chapter twenty-two. Here we we see another picture that relates to the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's something maybe that's that's uh, sometimes overlooked in this account that we're going to look at. In in Genesis chapter two, you have the Lord testing Abraham. And he, he tells Abraham to go and sacrifice his son Isaac, his only son. And um, he uh, uh, sent Abraham goes up there on the mountain. He takes Isaac with him. And uh, Isaac starts to ask some questions because they've got, they're obviously going to sacrifice and they've got wood there for the fire and, and everything that they need for the sacrifice, but there's no lamb for the sacrifice. And um, you have here a, a wonderful picture of substitution. And, you know, just so many things here that relate to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Abraham, it, by the way, it tells you later in the Bible uh, what kind of what was in Abraham's mind as he was doing this. You know, Abraham doesn't understand why God's telling him to kill his son. But Abraham knew the, the power of resurrection. And Abraham knew, and, and apparently what Abraham thought was, well, must be God's going to raise him from the dead, right? But Abraham proceeds in faith, and he's, he's going to go there to kill his son. In verse 10, it says, Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. And he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be seen. And here you have this picture of substitution where Abraham is, is called to slay his son, but God provides a sacrifice in the place of Isaac. And, and in fact, that's what, what Abraham had said when Isaac was, was asking about where the sacrifice was. If you go back up to verse 8, uh, Abraham's answer was, my son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. Now, Abraham didn't know at that point that God was going to provide uh, a, an animal to be killed as a sacrifice in the place of Isaac. But, but uh, nevertheless, Abraham's answer there wound up being true. And uh, so, so you have this picture there of the Lord Jesus Christ in that that ram, um, and you notice it describes how the ram is caught in a in a thicket, in a, a thorny thicket, by his horns. And 
you know, horns in the Bible always represent power. They, they uh, pretty, much, pretty much anywhere where horns are talked about in a symbolic sense, they represent power. In fact, the altars themselves that they built to God had horns on the altar. And, uh, you know, very often when somebody wanted to go and, and uh, beseech God and, and pray to God for something, they would grab a hold of that horn of the altar and they were asking for God to exercise his power. And here you have this, this creature, this ram, that has these horns. And the horns would be what the ram would use to defend itself and, and you know, use in that way. But... In this case, it's, it's the horns of the ram that cause it to be caught up there in the thicket. And it's caught there by its head. And if, if we didn't already have a, a clear picture here, you know, with this ram and, and God providing this ram as a substitute, that that's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. Here we have the, the head of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, uh, that, that crown of thorns pushed down a, upon his head uh, there at the crucifixion. Now, there's one more passage we want to look at, and this one is in Exodus, um, book of Exodus and chapter 29, Exodus chapter 29, and this passage has to do with the consecrating of the priests. Um, there, when someone was to be made a priest, there were a, a lot of different things that had to be done to consecrate them in the office of the priest. Um, and there were, there were special garments that the high priest especially had to wear. There were special garments for the rest of, of the priests as well. But when they became a priest, there, was the, the, there were several sacrifices and, and rituals that had to be performed in order to consecrate a priest and especially to consecrate the high priest. Now, remember that through the things that Christ is suffering there on, on Calvary, on the other side of Calvary, he's going to be identified as that, that great high priest. All right? And the, one, of the, one of the sacrifices here, if you come down to verse 19, there's several sacrifices. We're not going to talk about all of them. But in Exodus 29, verse 19, it says, And thou shalt take the other ram, and Aaron and his sons shall put their hands upon the head of the ram. Now, Aaron here, remember, Aaron is the, the brother of Moses, right? So we, we, we're kind of skipping around here. We talked about Adam and then Abraham, and now we're here at the, the time of Moses. And Aaron is the brother of Moses, and Aaron becomes the first high priest of the nation of Israel. And Aaron's sons become the, the lower priests. Now, under the law, the priest, the high priest, served until his death, and then one of his sons would take that place of, of high priest. Here, it's, it's Aaron as the high priest and his sons as the, the other priests that are being consecrated. They take this ram, they put their hands upon the head of the ram, and it says, Then shalt thou kill the ram and take of his blood and put it upon the tip of the right ear of Aaron, upon the tip of the right ear of his sons, upon the thumb of their right hand, upon the great toe of their right foot, and sprinkle the blood upon the altar round about. Now, here, you know, there's, there's several of these things that, you know, you might wonder, why, why would God ever think up a system like this? Why, you know, to take this priest, you've got to take this blood and put it on his ear and on his hand and, and on his foot. The, 
the emphasis on the right side is that's the that's the powerful side for the vast majority of people uh, they are are you know have more more power more dexterity in that right side and and when the Bible talks about the right hand uh, what it's emphasizing is emphasizing strength and and power here with these with these human priests uh, it's a consecration of their strength to God in the in the consecration of their right hands and the right side um, you know it's the the ear there where the where the blood is put and uh, these these priests are going to be involved in both both hearing and learning the word of God and teaching the word of God and their ear there is consecrated to God their hands with which they're going to perform the service is, is consecrated to God the um, their foot you know their feet with which they're going to go you know the priests the priests and and also the Levites they didn't just always stay in Jerusalem all the time. Um, they lived throughout the nation of Israel. And when they weren't there serving at the temple, they would be going and they would be teaching the, the word of God. And here it's, it's you know, their ears, their uh, hands, their feet are all sanctified to God. But when you think about this in, in light of what Christ is beginning to suffer here, you know that all of the wounds of Christ that he received in his crucifixion bear significance. It's no accident that he's wounded in the way that he was. The, uh, for instance, when it comes to his hands and feet, um, the, the, the prophets talked about how his hands and feet would be pierced. All right? But whereas these priests had to have the blood of a, a ram, the blood of a sacrifice applied to them to consecrate their hands and feet, Christ is, is both the priest and the sacrifice. And Christ, in the, in the things that he's suffering, he's being consecrated as a priest, but he's also the sacrifice that's being offered. Where they had to have the blood of an innocent animal applied to them, Christ's own blood is what could consecrate him as a high priest. And as, you know, as the day goes on, his hands and feet are going to be pierced, but here we have with the crown of thorns being pushed there on his head. And as the, as the blood runs down over his ears, we see a, a fulfillment of these things. Now, again, there's plenty of other things that we could look at even that would apply to this crown of thorns. It's, it's you know, the account that we're reading doesn't spend a, a great deal of time dealing with it. But you, you see these connections that are made. Again, nothing that's taking place here in the crucifixion of Christ is just arbitrary. None of it is by accident. You have all of these different actors, these different players that are, are you know, acting in the way that they do for various reasons. But all of it serves to fulfill the plan and purpose of God, the, the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. And, and uh, this consecration of Christ as a priest, let's go over into the book of Hebrews And Hebrews chapter 7, uh, Hebrews chapter 7 identifies, and much of the book of Hebrews, identifies the Lord Jesus Christ as a high priest. And there are comparisons and contrasts made between the priesthood of Christ and the priesthood of the Mosaic law. And if you just scan down through chapter 7, uh, you see that it mentions Levi and, and the Levitical priesthood many times there in that chapter. And then it contrasts the priesthood of Christ. 
Um, it, it calls Christ at the end of chapter six and into chapter seven. It calls him a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And uh, Melchizedek, if you want to do an interesting study on your own, study that that person of Melchizedek and uh, who who he is. And um, but if we if we begin in verse twelve, it says, "For the priesthood being changed." There is made of necessity a change also of the law. Under the Old Testament law, you had this priesthood of, of Levi and the Levitical priesthood. But Christ is a priest after a different order, after the order of Melchizedek. And if there's a change of the priesthood, there's a change of the law. Verse 13 says, For he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe, of which no man gave attendance at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident that after the similitude of Melchizedek, there ariseth another priest, who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. Jesus Christ was not eligible to be a priest. Under the Old Testament law, he wasn't from the right tribe. He wasn't from the tribe of Levi. He was from the tribe of Judah. Um, but, but you see here, it says he's not made a priest after the law of a carnal commandment. He's made a priest after the power of an endless life. Verse 17, for he testifieth, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did by the which we draw nigh unto God. And inasmuch as not without an oath, he was made priest. For those priests were made without an oath, but this with an oath by him that said unto him, The Lord swear and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Uh, none of the other priests that were made priests, they weren't, there was no, oath. the oath here that he's talking about is not like an oath of office. You know, a, a politician takes an oath of office when they, when they assume office, uh, promising to, to do certain things. It's not talking about an oath here that the priest would take. It's talking about an oath that God himself made to the Lord Jesus Christ. He, God didn't, God didn't make an oath to the Levitical priests, but he made an oath to the Lord Jesus Christ, calling him a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And it says, by so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. And it says, they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. See, these priests, those priests that we just read about back in the book of Exodus... Every generation, there'd have to be new priests consecrated. A new, every time upon the death of the high priest, you'd have to consecrate a new high priest. And over and over and over again, these priests would have to be set apart. They couldn't continue, as Hebrews says here, by reason of death. None of them could be a priest forever. They couldn't fulfill what, uh, what, what God says there about a, somebody being a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. But the Lord Jesus Christ... Because it says he continueth ever. The Lord Jesus Christ, they, they put him to death, but he conquered death. Because of that, he can be a priest in the way that Aaron never was. He can be a priest forever. Uh, and he has an unchangeable priesthood. Not a, not a temporary thing, but an unchangeable priesthood. 
And the Lord Jesus Christ, through his death, was consecrated as a priest, and that never has to be done again by anyone else. There's nobody who has to assume his office upon his death and be consecrated in his place. Rather, he has that position forever. And because of that, verse 25 says, Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. For the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity, but the word of the oath which was since the law maketh the Son who is consecrated forevermore. And, and the Lord Jesus Christ, by going through those things that he suffered, he is glorified by God. And one of the ways in which he's glorified is that he's made this priest forever. Hi, I'm Richard Church, the teacher here on Verse by Verse. I'm glad you've listened to our podcast today, and I would like to let you know that if you have any questions about anything you've heard here, you can contact me by email at richard at richardchurch.com or by telephone 608-339-9522. I also encourage you to check out our church website at www.friendshipbiblechurch.com. Thank you for joining us today, and our prayer is that this program would be a blessing to you in helping you to grow in your understanding of God's grace.